Hey everyone, welcome to the Journeyman Fire Podcast. I'm your host today, Grant Schwalbe, and I'm really excited that I've got uh, one of my mentors and good friends, Paul Capo, joining us today. Welcome, Paul. Well, hello, and good morning or evening or afternoon to all of you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe start out with how you got in the fire service? Yeah, um, not, not too crazy of a story. I kind of grew up in the in the firehouses of New York and my a couple of few of my uncles were FDNY firemen and was riding with them, I guess maybe 16 on or so. And, um, you know, lived in, moved to Florida and, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and firefighting wasn't like what I always inspired to do. Went off to college after high school, a couple of years, and then it hit me and I'm glad it did. Um, came home and went to fire Academy EMT school, paramedic school, and pretty much hit the ground running. So, um, yeah, it wasn't not, not too exciting of a story, but, um, while I was going through that college, I started volunteering at a local firehouse, uh, in my neighborhood and, and yeah, it was, it, it kind of cured a lot of, a lot of things I was looking for, um, in my life at the time and it never left. So then you got started into teaching. How'd you end up getting into the teaching in the fire service? Yeah, that kind of happened early on as well. Um, like I said, I hit the ground running. As soon as I, as soon as I went to the fire academy, I knew something was going on. Something was fulfillment in me. You know, people do that when they enter the military or they really have a desire to do something. And and the fire service kind of found me. And um, and as soon as I, I got out of fire academy, I, I just I remember graduating. Um, I don't know. It was like October ish, and um, EMT school didn't start till till January. So I stayed there and I took all these classes like every week, you know, we, we I lived at the fire Academy, literally there was dorms and taking all these classes. And, um, I wound up in 2001. So it was like five years after I'd been on the job already. I took a firefighter rescue and survival class from FDNY rescue one. And that was it. It, it clicked. And I said, I, I, this is what I want to do. Um, I have to be good at this. You know, when, my chief says this all the time, and I love it. He says, when police need help, they call the fire department. Um, when EMS needs help, they call the fire department. And when firemen need help, they call other firemen. So uh, I said, there's no 1011. No one else is coming but us. So how awesome would it be to just be really solid at a craft where you save other firefighters or learn how to save yourself? So after that that class with uh, FDNY Rescue One, I um, it was like a three year period of time. I was going up there and they were, they were coming down here. I had like a three year contract. Um, I just started talking about it and sharing it with, with friends throughout the fire department. And then um, there was one guy, his name was Dave. Uh, he said, will you speak uh, for eight hours uh, at this venue? And I was like, yeah, but I had no idea. And I was petrified. So I brought my gear and I built some props. And so uh, when I, couldn't speak anymore. I just started demoing things in this ballroom in St. Pete, Florida. And from there, this department asked me to go teach their fire department. And that department asked me to go teach their fire department. And I didn't know really what was going on. I, you know, it, it was totally reactive, um, everything. So, you know, the company is when things go bad incorporated, but it didn't start out like that. It started out with me passionate about speaking and then once people were asking me to speak, I started bringing some friends and we said, we need t-shirts. So we came up with a t-shirt and, and it got bigger and bigger. And we're like, well, I'm scared of liability. What if someone gets hurt? And um, we wound up getting incorporated in 2005 and the rest is, is kind of history, but did not do it traditionally with a concept and incorporated yourself, come up with a marketing plan, you know, get employees and then get clients. It was everything backwards. Yeah. I, I ended up taking a class with you up in St. Pete and I'm horrible at remembering what goes on in the class. I think, uh, you know, about half of what I take in class, I forget. So I tried to take notes real quick. And I remember talking to you afterwards. I'm like, Hey, Paul, where can I find more information? And I tried to Google you and anything that you were teaching and it was nowhere to be found. Uh, so it wasn't traditionally like, you know, a lot of the, 
a lot of the groups start a Facebook page and put out a bunch of information and it was totally organic person to person. Um, and I appreciate now that you're, you're sharing that more outwardly uh, so it can reach more people. Talk a little bit about um, your, your style of teaching and how you built a consistent company. Again, Oh five, we started and we're, we're still going today. The only reason why it, I guess it's not even more broad the last few years is just um, my new job up here in Colorado. And um, so it's kind of, we've been the only thing holding us back. My point is that 15 years must be doing something right. If it's been um, consistently, you know, pretty successful teaching a lot of students under our belt. Um, I I related to a few things. So like when you come on and, and teach for when things go bad, um, first you're vetted and, you know, usually have to take the class first, if not many times prior, there's not like a set number. And then you shadow as an instructor so we can see how you command an audience and, um, and your passion for the job. That's first and foremost. So kind of look at the three C's, you know, the character, the competency and the chemistry. So, um, you know, who you are as a person, we wanted to represent the company, um, the way, the way we would like it to be. And, um, can you relate to other firemen? And, 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 and it becomes all three of these C's come tangible. But, and then, of course, your competency. You really need to be, to be competent um, in, in what we're teaching, of course. So we, we help you with all of those things. So um, with the broad you know, instructors that, that we would have, um, they get an instructor manual. And it, it's not a step-by-step of how to do each task. Um, but it's an instructor manual about our philosophy and about our training methodology. And that's important. And I'll, I'll kind of go into it a little bit with you. Um, and we also sit down and do an onboarding process. It's like a little, little PowerPoint deal. And sometimes we do it just over the phone, but um, depending on where the instructor is located. And it, it, it talks about everything from how we, we want you to dress, you know, and PPE wise, um, how the students, when they come to your station, what they should be wearing, depending on each student. I mean, depending on each skill skill station, and and on and on and on. But um, you know, I, I would say that the instructor presence of taking what we do very, very seriously, but not taking ourselves seriously, has been the biggest. I would say probably one of the biggest qualities that the instructors carry that I try to carry all the time that gets the most. Um, I guess that gets received the you know best. You know, I, I've sat in many classes where the instructor is extremely knowledgeable, um, but yet couldn't couldn't relate to the student and had maybe no humor or wasn't compelling or engaging. And it's like though though they were informative, you know, I, I didn't want to come back over and over and over to, to hear them or kind of hang out with them or go have dinner with them and talk to them later. You know, there was something about them. So there's a way of handling yourself. I think on the company level, um, as a company officer or as a firefighter below, you come in to, to teach a drill to, um, to, re- to really mind yourself is you take what you're doing serious. You don't take yourself so serious. We're all out there and have a good time. I don't believe any fireman comes to work intentionally to embarrass themselves in front of their peers. So, um, so that type of, that, that's like one of the first thing um, along with that doubling on that, we wear we wear gear, you know. At the very least, you know, pants. Um, depending on how cold it is, you know. Of course, we'll have jackets on, but but you you lead by example. Before we teach a bailout, you know, we're bailing out. Um, I don't get off on a tangent right now, but something else to keep in mind that when things get bad, instructors really get stressed upon is, you know, people are hesitant about things that they haven't done, especially in the precarious or the. Uh, like real emergent levels of firefighter safety, uh, excuse me, I don't even like, like that word, if I would say, uh, firefighter survival or firefighter rescue, um, it can get pretty precarious. So it's understandable that, that we knock out the three things that will give them anxiety. And one is the skill. Will the skill work? The second is, will the equipment work? And then the third thing is, are they able to get themselves up and out of the window or go down in this smoky hole, you know, for the NANS drill. So we, we eliminate two of those right away. Um, I'll use bailout, for example. Uh, will, will the skill work of us wrapping it around our bodies, let's say, and going? Well, that's checked off when our instructor jumps out the window with a wrap it on their body. 
And it also checks off the equipment. If they're using that equipment that we're providing, then their equipment worked because they just did it. Now we just have to encourage them to do the third thing, which is, can you get yourself up and out of this window? So we do that by encouragement. Um, we definitely want them to succeed. Whole another aspect of having a, a, the benefits of a successful completion in our trainings. So, so I guess to answer your question, I guess um, the way we handle ourselves, the way we, um, the way we dress and teach and lead by example, as opposed to, to not being prepared in the right gear. So as an instructor, you know, you can't be as much output as the student, you know, but um, you want to be cognizant of other safety things and be aware of other things, but we're definitely leading by example um, is, is another thing. And um, I, I touched a little bit on the encouragement. Um, I think when you're teaching a class, time management is important. Um, to respect the student's time that your stations are ample to water breaks or your classrooms um, segmented in a way where, where you break it on the hour every hour. So there's some professional things that no matter if it's an incorporated company or if it's you're just teaching a class, you know, you go out there for three hours and cut holes in roofs for three hours. Yeah, that's, that's pretty gangster, but your people are going to get not want to ride with you and not want to go to the roof we did to go for three hours cut roof. So there's gotta be a little balance of time management. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of what else that we, um, oh, and the other thing is, um, I don't want to get into the, right now, at least the pace, the pace methodology, but there's gotta be, you gotta have, you gotta have different levels of, of skill set. Let's say, um, some, some alterations in your skills because not everyone that shows up are going to be the same. You know, not everyone's going to be a Navy SEAL that shows up. Not everyone's going to be your 15-year stud. So you have some, some weaker, smaller junior people, and how are they going to compare with the, the, the senior people? Um, so you have a little alteration to some of your drills. Not changing your curriculum, but a couple of different ways of like, all right, this is how we're going to alter this drill for you, or this is how we're going to make this for you. And, and it makes everyone leave successful um, as opposed to having one Mac Daddy standard way you know there's some skills out there that there's like one way to do it and i get it but you know try to have some alterations of whether it's pinning the hose to the ground to take away some some back pressure or um or just yoking it with one hand for some people you know like to, to just an, anticipate your audience before they come um is a big thing so i hope i answered a little bit of that yeah, can you give us an example on that, that pace methodology? I know you've, we've done this before when we talk about firefighter packaging, because uh, I think that's a good example. Yeah, um, so, so firefighter packaging, I guess, is a good example of, of some alterations of packaging. So, for instance, if you only teach the package down firefighter, let's say, by um, you know, assessing airway, of course, if that's the most appropriate to put them on, and then if you deem it's necessary to convert the harness into a, a class three harness, so to speak, to get them out of, haul them out of a window or drag them over a lengthy period of time. If you believe that that tactic is most um, beneficial in, in this time, then we talk about packaging. So you, you, you loosen the belt straps and then you, you lift the leg and you unclick the belt and you reclick it in between the legs. And we, we like tighten up one shoulder strap. So that's airway, belt, chest, and then the D is drag. And, many different drags so you teach that and that's great um but it's great until you go to the down firefighter and their belt isn't connected together um whether it's a department that's culture is they don't they don't strap their belt or if you got to them after some other firefighters tried and they messed something up and they dropped the two buckles you know the male and female buckle on their belt and now now you're forced with this so there's a phenomenon. It's not so much a phenomenon. It's it's actually a there's fact that perseverance um, occurs when your sympathetic nervous system kind of takes over, and down firefighters there. You know him or her, and next thing you know, like you're bringing you're in a chaotic scenario, and then if you don't have a plan, you're going to bring chaos into chaos, and that will exponentially. Um, increase your problem which means that if you go for that belt and it's the only way that you've trained and that belt isn't present let's say in this scenario 
perseverance takes over where you're like scraping that like on that belly button all this time looking for that belt because that's the only thing you got and cognitive processing starts deteriorating when you know in this environment when that hormonal induced tachycardia takes over and next thing you know you're either going to succeed or die trying of uh reaching for that belt so to enforce those contingency plans like you said um introduce pace methodology so you have a primary way which is the way i just mentioned your belts there then you have alternative way then you have a contingency way and then you have an emergent way maybe that air pack's already drug off they should have packaged but they they, they didn't and they pulled they pulled on the scba pack and, it, and it's off them now now what the heck do you do so that's emergent you know so do we try to put that back on do we come up with um another way like some webbing do we drd it you know do we for a, anything right like do we you take your razor knife out and cut the carpet below them and now you have like a sheet, right? Like there's a zillion ways, but the point is, is that you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to sink to the level of your training. So having a pace methodology in regards to having this primary alternative contingency and emergent plans and you train on those appropriately. Um, you ask the question as a follow-up for how I was alluding to like a junior member and a senior member. Well, that's what I mean that you have the, you have these plans. So if they, Go to your class where today you're saying, hey, we're doing packaging in the bay. Well, you and your buddy or the senior guys, they've done packaging a bunch. But now you say, all right, you guys, once I see proficiency in the primary way, I want you guys to now remedy the scenario where you can't get the belt between their legs. It's just they're too big of a firefighter or what's the case. How are we remedying that? And, you know, whether it's getting to the head and lifting the arm and pushing down the bottle or pulling out a webbing or whatever the scenario is. And that's what's, what I'm trying not to do purposely is tell you exactly how to do it, but to come up with the methodology that it needs to be in place because it doesn't always go as planned um, in that idealized environment. So, so that's kind of like <laughs> the pace methodology in short, but um, you know, I use it for, I use it for driver engineer training or, or let's say stretching lines. Like, the primary right out of academy, they might just do a rig to door, you know, stretch the rig to door correctly, flow it and advance it upstairs. Like that's, that's basic. That's great. But then, you know, you're, you're all, you know, the person that's been in the firefighter's been there for a while. It's like, all right, I need you to do a balcony stretch. I need to take the three inch with the gated Y up there to tie it off. And then you're going to stretch the bundle off of that. So it's like, all right, now a little more complex, you know, and then contingency plan. Um, you know, is, is, is even more complex. It's a short stretch and you're going to have to like, all right, uh, how are you going to remedy this? And whether you extend it up the nozzle, you, you start to do it back at the engine, you stretch a second line, but, but that's, that's enforced in training. So when that happens, they're just like, I got this at least at that level. And then I'll say, give an example of an emergent, like a burst line inside of a fire. Right. So you got a burst line. So it's kind of like the, 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 the short stretch where you're going to have to remedy that some way. But um, you, got, you got some stimuli in there that you didn't have with the stretch short. You know, you have maybe a wild line or something. So, so my point is that that's where those people come in. You're like, we're stretching line today. And you can challenge the senior member by not overwhelming the junior member. But you can still challenge the junior member um, in their way and challenge the senior member. And also, it infuses contingency plans. So when you're on the fire ground and one of those things happen, it's not like, oh, I'm going to put it all together. Yeah, you know, good good luck with that. It, it, that doesn't always happen. If that always happened, September twenty eighth, nineteen ninety two, wouldn't we want to talk about it? And that's Mark Langbrook's fatality in Denver. I work with Denver uh, here in Colorado, and they are squared away firemen, and they were in nineteen ninety two. Yet that happened, and now well, there's six ways to get them out. Or Columbus in nineteen eighty seven, when John Nance fell through a hole in the floor. Columbus Fire Department's a big paid fire department. And it's like it just shows you that. At times, um, something is going on when in those scenarios, especially in firefighter rescue and survival, that um, you really need to come to the fight with those plans so you can, you, you can pull on those. Uh, something I love that you teach, and this is probably what you're best known for other than the, when things go bad, is uh, your, your physiology of self-preservation. Can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit how that plays into how you build your skills? Well, yeah, definitely. It, it plays a big portion in the arenas of firefighter rescue and survival. Um, I don't, I don't um, use it too much 
in regards to every other discipline. And I'll tell you why here in a little bit, just with the word you said, the physiology. So we're not having much physiological changes when we're going through a normal fire. Like, yes, we're getting a little, um, a little amped up, you know, you're getting a little tachycardic and as we should, you know, there's a lot of great things that happens when either we feel like we're going to have to defend ourselves in a fist fight or something, multiple knocking on your door at three in the morning and you get up all amped up. Like, like th there's some great things that happen during that time when we're going just to a normal structure fire. You know, I, I think Andy Fredericks, right. Said, uh, garbage men turn the corner and they see fire. Us, you mean, they see garbage. They don't get excited when we turn a corner and we see fire, like we shouldn't get real excited. So what he means by that is, yeah, you should get, get excited to a point where we shouldn't be losing our dang minds, you know, like jumping off the rig and forgetting our helmets, like, like that type of stuff, because we're so like out of our mind, like cuckoo, like, all right, we need, we need to calm down there. Right. We need to get a little more experience, a, a little, a, a little, little slower, higher distress, slower you go kind of deal. Um, so I'm not saying we shouldn't get a little amped up on a fire when we're forcing the door stretching a line or the person's hanging out of the window. Absolutely. But there's some, there's a different level. And I go through these steps of condition white to yellow to, to red to gray to black. And, and you're, you're on those gray to black levels when your best friend, John Nance, is in the hole. And your name is Vic Runkle on top of the hole touching your best friend down in the hole. Vic is experiencing some things, right? Just like if I have to go in for another brother or sister firefighter that I know that I know their family, I know their children, I know where they live. And now you got to go and rescue them or yourself. And you're caught in an entanglement or you're in a, in a bad scenario. Let's just say like um, in the Pang warehouse fire in Seattle, you know, firemen were, were in a bad place and, and you had to breach a wall to go to a safe haven, which, which, which they, that was in hindsight, which what they had, um, you, you got to save yourself. So things start happening physiologically and, and your heart rate goes up with hormonal induced tachycardia rather than just a physical induced tachycardia, which releases catecholamines. Catecholamines are epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine. And a lot of things happen that are really, really good. Your body shunts blood from your peripherals, like your hands, your feet, you know, to your bigger muscles for strength and speed, you know, your biceps, your tries, your back, your glutes. And um, so it shunts blood, your, your bronchioles dilate um, and receives more oxygen in your villi. So when your blood transfers over your villi, you get more oxygenated blood in those big muscles. So you do have superhuman strength, so to speak. All that stuff's great. You know, your cones and your rods and your eyes change shape, which makes you, uh, you know, experiences that tunnel vision, but it makes you really hyper-focused at the task at hand. And um, the list goes on of, of all of the benefits of some hormonal-induced tachycardia. Like I said, when you go to a fire, some of that stuff's great. The rapid knocking at the door at three in the morning, you know, you're pretty hyper-focused. You're going to be quick. You're going to be fast. Um, but then it gets to a point where you transition from your prefrontal cortex, which is uh, your cognitive, rational, mind um to your amygdala which is your midbrain and, and you really get really really strong like i said at the price of being very very dumb so to answer your question with all of that physiological changes and now we're at this point where it's like the cognitive processing is gone when john nance climbed up that ladder to come out of that hole his head hit the floor joists because he was climbing the wrong side of the ladder he wasn't going inverted but the ladder was straight up and down and he didn't rationalize. I'm hitting my head on the floor joists. There's gotta be a hole somewhere. The ladder came down. I'm on the wrong side of the ladder. Like that, that cognitive processing did not happen. And we focus on just lifting mass out of the hole. Well, what happened prior? How come, how come John didn't, didn't realize that? How come firemen say, you know, I'm, I'm lowering him the nozzle. I'm lowering him some air and buy him some time. Maybe he'd put the fire out. Right. Um, so, and there were things with, with many different fatalities that you can look at that you just can't put your finger on, but we focus on such a surface level of the skill. We're not focused on like, how, how did he get there? You know, how, 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 how did that not happen when everyone looking at this scenario is like, just do that or just do this or just do that. It's like, there's a, there's a difference. So back to the question, when you're teaching firefighter rescue or firefighter survival, you have to take that into consideration 
because what we can devise now is a plan for, let's just use what I was using, the subfloor rescue. It cannot be, it cannot be mentally exhausting. You cannot come out with this, I gotta determine how far they're down and I gotta take that measurement and then I gotta divide it by four. And then this, this is a real drill, it's called the big W, it's in a textbook. And then I gotta tie knots, oh, here we go. Can't tie knots because of that, that blood shunting, you, you lose that fine motor skills. In, in your hands, right? So, so all of this, this, all of the the being you are in that time has to relate to the skill. So, um, you go through the three E's. There, got to be efficient. You know, um, it's it's got to be effective and it's got to be executable under survival stress. So, saying just staying with the executable under survival stress makes you say, all right, listen, this is this is how I'm gonna I'm gonna lose I'm gonna lose near vision. Um, with the change of my cones and my rods and my eyes, right? So it's like I, I can't do something really closely. Looking at your radio to change a a channel, like that, that might not be present. Or um, doing math, right? Vic Runkle uh, wasn't doing math on top of the hole in Columbus. So it's got to happen right now, which is the efficiency out of your pocket, here comes your, your bailout ropes, we'll call it, but just your, your personal escapers, and, and you're pulling them out right now with no knots to be done. It's exactly how we teach. Or, you know, the bite of the hose is totally fine as well, but um, sending someone down in the hole, it's all got to be right now, and it's all got to be um, with the being that, that you will have. So in, in all the drills in Firefighter Rescue and Survival, we take that in consideration, and they got to pass those three stop gates, like I mentioned before. Um, and if the skill or the equipment doesn't pass, um, then we find another one. I'll give you one more thing. I, I talked about a skill. I'll give you um, just a piece of equipment, and it's a real common one, and it's, it's entanglement. Um, I believe entanglement is, man, it's just tough to say 100%, but 100%, if not real, real close, um, the steps that we teach, you will get out of, let's just say, 100% of entanglement. And not, not collapse, but but entanglement. And, and one of those steps, one of those four steps is, is wire cutters. So if, if you're going to deem to, let's say, doff your pack and then cut yourself out or leave your pack on and, and cut yourself out, the wire cutters, that piece of equipment has to be executable under survival stress, which means you can't use fine motor skills to open them up. Like if it's your Leatherman, you know, that, that, that's not going to work. Gloves on or off, it doesn't matter. That, that's not your time to do that. Or like little safety latches or some, some crazy stuff that you're gonna have to manipulate. Now it, it is just pretty much panic mode. Um, we teach de-escalation techniques, of course, to get out of that that level. But but besides that, um, and I'll say they can't have a stripping notch. There's another fine motor skill. Motor skill. So you could just go to Home Depot and buy a random pair of lineman cutters, which are great. Um, but if they have a stripping notch in there, you're gonna be screwed because one of the big things that that that, that hooks us up is um, the AC duct wiring that comes out of the ceiling and um, comes down through the drywall and it's you know coated with that that silver insulation as a black layer inside and it's really really thin it's one wire but it's like a slinky and they fit perfectly right in that stripping notch so so that's a fine motor skill to think you're only going to go like halfway and you're going to like determine that with your cutters so so that's kind of answering your question is you, you got to take take that physiology of self-preservation what you're going to be in that time and relate that to your, your kind of self, your, your survival and your rescue skill stations, not so much in your other ones. Uh, while you're talking about entanglement, uh, the thing that, that comes up the most uh, with what you taught me is not putting the student into a position where they're going to fail and leave them at that position. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, Definitely. You know, it, it's been proven. You've got, got the resources if you want to, the references, if you, wanna, you want them. But it's been proven that a successful outcome of a skill will train the midbrain um, to perform correctly when your mind is stressed. So, yeah, repeated actions of successful, successful completion is huge. And I'll, I'll get into where you're going with, um, with not having a negative outcome. But so when you do a skill, you create a neural pathway and the more times you do that skill, you, you increase myelination around the neural pathway. And the more, the more myelin 
the quicker the reaction time to, um, to recall that skill, right? So practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So the more you practice a skill, the more myelination is going to be on it. And that's what you're going to recall. And there's some pretty, pretty cool case studies that I use um, that I reference some just bad behavior, some like scar tissue or the midbrain, we, we, we call it. Um, so, so the point is, is that when, when, the, when the student is, let's just use the entanglement scenario, but we, we do this in almost all of them. When the student is in the entanglement station, right? And it's like a little confined, they're all caught up there. You could tell anxiety is like, you know, coming on them. Um, we encourage. Now, it's a fine line because I, I stress all my, 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 my students, uh, excuse me, my instructors, you want your students to think. You want them to work through the problem when appropriate. You don't want to micromanage their, their thought process because then when they leave your presence, they're not going to know what to do, right? So you kind of want them to figure it out a little, but not get themselves in too much of a hole, especially in the firefighter survival and rescue environment. So, so back to the entanglement, you know, they're in there. They're doing their thing and they're getting flusters and maybe they're getting a little anxious. You can tell, right? They're becoming a bull in a china shop. So we're like, all right, slow down. Do that skip breathing we taught. Let's kind of calm it down. Now, now back up. That's step one, back up. Now, do you feel that tight one that's not letting you back up anymore? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the one we need to focus on. So do that swim technique and feel it, right? All right, oh yeah, I got it. So now they're on a, now they're on a plan. So I was like, all right, let's just say, take out your wire cutters and, and, and cut it. So good, all right. We took out our wire cutters, we cut it now. We're on our left side, we're swimming through, we get out. I'm like, man, great job, you know, like, like good job. And then we put them back in line. Their buddy comes up to you and like, that wasn't a great job at all. You told them everything that they needed to do. Um, like, they didn't do that on themselves. And they're like, here comes this rhetorical argument. Well, not, not true, not necessarily. So they were in a place where we had to intervene. Because if we didn't intervene, we felt like in that moment, in that time, this is what's going to happen. They're going to panic attack. They're going to take off their mask, let's say, so they can see because they're blocked out. And they're going to trip out and, and their mask is off. Well, that is a neural pathway. And that is myelination around that neural pathway, taking off that mask. And then two months, two years, 20 years, 10 years, down the road, they get entangled in a fire. And when your whole life fast, um, goes before your eyes, Ken Murray's book, it says, you know, like we can all say that. What he's describing is that there's a slideshow in your brain that says, all right, I'm entangled. What have I been in similar to this? That got me out of it because obviously I got out of that because I'm here today. What did I do in the past? Oh yeah, I reached up to my chin, I ripped off my face fat, you know. So they're creating that that neuropathway of that. That's the outcome, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, practice makes you know permanent. So that's what they're going to do. So we don't want that to even be an issue. Nor do we want that person to leave that station saying, "Man, I stink at entanglement. Every time I'm in this thing, I can never get out of it." So. So that, that, that conceptualization phase of they conceptualize themselves failing is like every time Shaquille O'Neal used to go to the free throw line basketball, he just throw the ball up against the backboard. He's like, I, I just don't do free throws. I slam dunk and that's it. We, we don't want that built in their ego saying, I'm not good at this. I can't do this because it's your life on the line. So we want to build that successful outcome. Do we want that student to think on their own and do those steps appropriately? Absolutely. But I want them coming off the rig. If it's stretching line, if that's what we taught them, or getting caught in entanglement, coming off like a gangster, that they're so confident because of their competency, because of their competency, not just this egotistical, prideful confidence, but because of their competence, that they're so confident that they're ready to take on the world. And we all want that. Let's say as an incident commander, hey, Who's going through the roof? And they're all like flinching forward. It's like, yeah, because you're so competent that you're confident. That's, that's the mindset we want them leaving. And then we make sure that the student goes in there, goes through the motions again, does it by themselves. But if, if they die, like rhetorically die in that entanglement simulator at your station, that they will have this conceptualization phase in real life that they, they can't do that. Um, and it builds that, that process. Some of these masks getting ripped off of faces with 1,100 pounds of air of these case studies throughout the years, I wonder if that wasn't a solution for their disorientation when they were training, as opposed to not even being an option 
and resorting to another behavior because the instructor could have maybe coached them into another successful behavior rather than letting them figure it out on their own. They're a student, right? It is training. So it's not testing. You can, you can encourage without micromanaging. I love that people get to hear the thought process that you put into what seems like you're just doing a class that there's so much more on the backhand side and uh, there, there's reasoning as you go through this. And I, I hope as, as guys go out and they, they do training on their own, they'll, they'll stop and pause and put in that front end effort to, to hopefully get that output uh, like you're seeking. Now, anybody that's been around you, you don't stop. You, you're yeah. teaching all day long. We take a break and there's cap over in the corner showing a, um, uh, a drywall climb or, you know, tips and tricks and, and everything. But what I love when you get into the teaching session is you break it down very simply. And, and I think you, you talk about it as chunking of information. Uh, can you explain chunking of information? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you have, uh, you remember a, a lot of stuff since we were together doing our training. Um, yeah. Chunking of, of information is big as well. So I guess this all could have been said in your first question about, like methodologies and philosophies, but um, so it takes an overwhelming drill and makes it more achievable um, in your mind. So whether it's your prefrontal cortex that's cognitively processing that can figure stuff out, right? Um, or it's your amygdala, which is only responsible for four things, right? Fight, flight, feeding, and fornicating. You know, it's reproducing, um, and it's real dumb but it, it survives. So, so either way, e, e, either brain, this, this, this works and successful. So um, I'll, I'll just use, I don't know, I can, I use them all, but the bailout one that we were talking about earlier, right? Jumping out the window. Um, that's a kind of overwhelming. So it's like, all right, so it's really getting bad to the point I got to jump out this window on this rope that's as big as a pencil and um, lots on the line here. So, when you teach that drill in its an entirety and they rep it multiple times, it, it's fun. It's, it's interesting to watch how the student gets things correctly in certain segments one time and then totally messes it up the second time, but yet gets the other section correct. And you could, you can look at this with, with the V split of the rigged door or m many different things. It's like, what's going on? Well, it's, it's, it's really overwhelming in the brain. So how to eliminate that is chunking of information. And then you segment it. So let's just talk about the rope slide. You say, can you wrap this end of the rope, this carabiner, let's say, around this organic object, this bedpost, or you know, the hook on the window, whatever the scenario. So yeah, I can wrap it around there. Great. That's the beginning. And you'll never have to do that again. So let's wrap that a few times. So it comes out of your pocket, you turn right, it comes out of your pocket, you turn left, you, uh, whatever this you know you, you just keep wrapping it. like yeah I, I got this you know whatever anchor couple anchors that you use then it's like all right now can you transition to the window and put wrap this rope around your body like this now there's a couple instances things that we do you know like i stay low or wrap it around it's like yeah i can do that all right let's wrap that that that's that's the middle and you will never have to do that again like all right well this ain't too bad and it's like, all right, can you just roll yourself out of this window? Yeah, I want your hands to clear the sill so they don't get caught. I want your, your leg to be last to leave so it doesn't shock load the rope. There's a couple little things that I, that I have them do, but it's like, just roll out the window, get out the window. It's like, oh, I can get out the window. And we rep that. And then we put it all together, of course, and then they do it. But in their mind, they segment it. They're like, boom, 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 done. Next, boom, done. And then out the window, done. So it takes an overwhelming skill and it breaks it up in a beginning, middle, and end. And it's been like this for centuries. It's how we used to remember phone numbers, right? Um, when we used to, it's just, it's just, it's chunking of things. It's, it's why paragraphs are, are in existence. Um, it's why the Bible has scripture numbers, you know, of, of verses, you know? So it's just chunking. And, um, and I, I would use that in, and I do, I do that operationally. It's like, hey, when you get up the rig, grab the K-tool and the irons before you go to the commercial door. You got to grab that. Before I teach you how to use the K-tool, it's like you got to bring it to the door, you know? So that's like the first step of through the lock, forceful entry. And the list goes on and on and on. 
So let's transition a little bit out of teaching into uh, mentoring. The first thing I want to talk about is the mentoring that you got and how, how did you even get selected and, and start teaching with FDIC and that group of guys that you taught with? Cause I know that's oh, an important man. part of, of your story. Oh yeah. Um, oh, thanks for asking that. I'd love to honor, man, love to honor all my mentors and man, I, uh, man, yeah, uh, this is great. Yeah. It's emotional. It, it's, it's touching. So of course my first mentor, Jim Carino in the firehouse, of course you get the senior man and, took a liking to me and I must've done some things to impress him. So he got me, he got me far and told me all the things about how just what, what being a fireman's about. Right. So, so that kind of started. And then, um, I got Dave, Dave Kissinger. You wound up seeing me, uh, in a, in a class and saw something in me and, and put me in front of the dolphin beach resort. Right. So all these little, it was not, it was nothing with me. And I like, I like to say God had a hand on, on my life too. And I always try to keep myself out of things and input him. So it, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely a lot of people have lifted me up, but, uh, FDIC now. Um, so our training, our training chief left, they brought in a guy, his name is Bob Dubay out of Fairfax. And he came in and um, with the vacancy of the training division, they put me in it. And I was teaching rescue and survival to the membership. And he would come around and he would look at me as, as he's trying to figure out the training bureau. And I was just in this, in this training program in the middle of it. And he was going to take over, you know, right after. Well, in that time, he got promoted to ops chief like right away and never got a chance to even teach anything as training chief. So I'm coming out of training now. And he says, we're bringing in this guy. His name is Jim Crawford out of Pittsburgh to go for the train, the training chief job. Um, can you meet him? I said, Jim Crawford. I said, he's like a, I'm like a little girl and going to meet a backstreet boy. You know what I mean? It, I've watched all of his VHS tapes, you know, American heat working fire. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know Jim Crawford. Well, again, be, just being a student of the job and learning how to get someone upstairs, you know, from, from him. So he comes down and we go out to dinner and it was me and Jim, my mentor, my other buddy and mentor, Brian, and we're doing, we're doing dinner and I just start asking him questions. I'm like, can you tell me about Bryson street? You know, he lost three firefighters going to in the basement. So he's like, you know about Bryson street? I'm like, ah, kind of like, can you? and we start talking and, and the passion just kind of comes out on both of us. And so for two, three days, as we're like meeting for lunches and dinners, we're kind of interviewing him. He was interviewing me and I didn't know that. And um, I just wouldn't kind of leave him alone a little bit. And at the end of his week um, in Clearwater, he, uh, he wound up declining the job first off and he went back to Pittsburgh, but he says, we have a vacancy in FDIC there's um, 12 full-time instructors with a lot of volunteers. We'd like to be one of those 12 instructors to teach um, at FDIC. And it was just it blew my mind. So I went out the next April and I was on that cadre with man, presence of Ed Farley and Jimmy Ellis out of Pittsburgh and, and um, Mikey Bates out of Providence, Rhode Island and got a chance to meet Paul Dowdy. And it just, the list goes on and on. And Steve Robertson out of Columbus and it was just all over the, all over the gamut that it was nothing, it was like nothing else. So I wanted to use that platform just to, you know, just to be, I guess, be me. And it worked because I taught with uh, chief Crawford for 11 years and it was, it was really awesome. You spent a lot of time as an officer. How did you run your crew and bring your guys up to develop them to, to eventually end up taking your position? Yeah. Um, well, I, I was, I was a Lieutenant for 11 years. They didn't have captains in my fire department. So, um, went through the ranks as a firefighter medic and then, and then got a driver engineer and drove a tower ladder and then, um, got promoted, floated for a little bit, you know, roved and then got on the tiller, um, downtown. And that's where I spent pretty much all of 11 years. And I want to say I had the same four, I had four firemen for the most part. Um, for the whole time. One Irons guy, Jim, got replaced with another Irons guy, Jim. So they were both Jims. Um, and we had a good thing going. We, we, we really did. A lot of empowerment is probably one of the first things that I, I tried to uh, 
instill in them that um, as long as you make a decision, I'll support you because I'm not next to them. So when I always say, I'll send you to the roof. I'm not going to order, order you on it. So I'll order you to the roof. I'll never order you on it. And that is like with everything else, which means that I already I said, I need to open up the roof, whether I'm inside or before I jump out the rig and they, they hit their air brakes. But when they get to the roof, they're like, nope, whether, whether your scenario, whether it's too icy or it's too sleep or it's too spongy or whatever the case is, um, there's like roofs not getting open. Copy that, you know, not that happened over and over and over again. We'll have a different conversation, but, um, so I would say impairment. They, they really felt that they had ownership in their position. Um, and when we, when we trained on those separate skills, whether it's forcing the rear door, or getting through the gate to get to the rear, um, it was there. It was their, their deal. It was their deal. So they, they got really good at it. And um, I'd always say, I can't teach you everything about your position. You're going to have to teach me a little something about it. I expect you to, to find a new way to get to the bulkhead to open it up or padlock slap or twist chain link you know uh a chain and padlock so it's like you gotta you gotta own this position and all our circles overlapped right so we all kind of this guy stepped up to tiller that guy stepped up to drive the tractor and so granted it wasn't just and you know we even we worked overtime so there was even a host component in there of, of uh stretching but I'd, I'd probably say that what I found in my career working under bosses or the way I, I try to handle myself, that the micromanaging really teaches you how not to think. And then they get anxious that they want to please you so much. They want to do what you want them to do as, as opposed to, you know, maybe coming up, innovating some new ways. So coming up with the plan as the officer it should be, it shouldn't be a laissez faire, everyone figuring it out mentality. It shouldn't always be a democratic. Um, form of you know relationship or it shouldn't be always an autocratic there's time for all three um but but knowing that and and knowing when it's time to get together and say all right how are we going to handle this on the way to the job or when we get out and say i need you to do that now like that's autocratic and as long as you're not like any of those three all the time i want to say that you'll get much more reception from your crew and that's what i that's what i try to do and Gave us a lot of healthy pride, I want to say, um, on the job, which put out a lot of good work. Uh, being as educated as you are in the circles you run with, I can imagine at points in your career you wanted to bring stuff back to your department and were met with a roadblock. How did you handle adversity through your career and not become one of the dirtbags that stopped giving a crap about the job? Yeah. Well, that's a... That's a frustrating one. And I think that's a topic of a lot of our conversations. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't say I handle it appropriately all the time, especially when you're so passionate about something and you want to make a positive change and higher ups for some reason or the other didn't, didn't see, didn't see what you were trying to do. So um, what, I, what I would always tell my subordinates too, and I try to follow the same philosophy was um, be in a position where you can make positive change. And if, and if we can at this time, then, then, then we got to go back to school, be, take the tests, get promoted. Um, so you can, you can affect positive change. We can complain about this, this, the superiors that never did the job that are telling us we can't get the pro bars or we can't do the tactics um, because they never did the job, but they're in that position. What did they do to get there? So I went to school later in life. I got my bachelor's um, degree. Um, I'm in my, my master's program right now. And it's, it, it's, you get to, you get to a place where you can make positive change. A lot of it can be made from below. Absolutely. But the, there's sometimes you just gotta, if you, if you don't respect the man, you gotta respect the position and the position sometimes tells you, tells you no. So, um, I, I will tell you, I will tell you this, and it's easier with the firefighter survival and, and firefighter rescue. But when I teach those two, um, I try to do this on other things. And sometimes I get a little long winded or my, my conversations meet, meet in a circle, but I try to rationalize the drill before we do it. So whatever that is, I'll, like I said, a couple fatalities right now, I'll say another one, 1999, Vinnie Fowler died at the bottom of seven stairs in New York city. Right. So I give him that. That says like, if FDNY couldn't come out of the stairs, 
did like, how could we, right? So I give the case study in my skill station. I repeat that three times as they rotate to me or whatever. And then we do, then we do the skill rather than some lofty, lofty joke or say, all right, we're going to do like a drop bar punch or cut technique in the rear of a, of a commercial occupancy. And, but I'll say, like, all right, this is how it's set up. This is your scenario. Like, like to make it real. Like, oh yeah. I know I got one of these in my area rather than saying, this is how we're going to handle this thing. The same way that I try to lead from below is I, I try to bring a proposal, whether it's just verbally or it's, or it's formal. And I'll be like, um, you know, this, this is exactly what happened. This is the first drill I ever taught uh, when I was young, uh, probably a couple years on the job. But I, I showed him the video of Mark Langvart's fatality in Denver. And I'll say, this guy's stuck in this window for 45 minutes. What's going to change right here in Clearwater, Florida, if this happens exactly today and we repeat this fatality? And they look at you a blank face, you know, because they don't have a plan. I said, this already happened. We shouldn't die the same way somebody else died. So we need to learn this Denver drill. And they're like, uh, okay. They, they, you can't say no to that. You know, how do you say no to that? Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. And I've experienced, you know, the no's. But I try to present it at least with that type rather than like, oh, Paulie Capo wants to, to do some drill to put himself over. No, really? Anyone can teach it, but I really am passionate about us learning this drill or getting this piece of equipment or, or having a capability for a, uh, a really deep set, setback. We have no way to get hose up past 200 feet, you know? So it's like you set it up with pictures of your first do and say, chief, this is a deep setback and we need a three inch with a gated Y and a bundle or something, you know, whatever the scenario is. Um, Preload pre it rather than just arguing about it. And then I'm going to end with what I started with. You know, um, get to a position where you can make positive change. So, yeah, I guess you're not going to win them all. Uh, it's so funny to hear you talk about hose and how far you've come from the truck days. So, a lot of guys say, "Man, I wish I had Capo as a chief." Knowing you as a line guy, never thinking you'd come off the rig. What do you say to guys that are? been officers for a while have some opportunity but say gosh i really like running the calls i don't know if i want to do that you've gone through that transition yeah well no it's it's a maturity that you have to that you have to get your mind right about it um it's definitely a different it's a different position um i'm the operations and training chief i have training under me as well but it is not appropriate for me i feel to go force the door anymore um, it's not appropriate for me to do those task oriented things or else I, I should have stayed a fireman. But the reason why I went to school to, to be able to, to lead or to be on a platform where I can, I can make more positive change or more people to have a span of influence underneath me that's greater than the, the four people or the 11 firemen on, at my station. Um, when you go there, they, then you sacrifice something. So it's not easy. I, I can't say it's an easy, and I can't say it's for everybody. Some people that just love the job at doing the job, you know, the 34 year guy, the 40 year guy that's riding back step, right? The Joe Angelini's of FDNY. It's, it's not for everyone, nor am I encouraging everyone to take that step. Um, there, there's some that like, why you want to be a fireman? I want to help people, right? Yeah, okay. But there's also some, you're doing it for self. And that's not a bad thing to be excited to go to work every day doing the job you want to do. So I, it's not for everyone, but, and as, ta as task oriented and still, I throw a lot of still, you know, training and I make sure that I get my, my feel um, at the fire academy that I teach at. I still do when things go bad classes, I'll still be able to flip ladders and, and do things. So I still have that, but I think it's inappropriate to do lower level stuff when you have firefighter that you should be empowering and enabling to do that stuff. So um, it, it's, it's a conscious effort every time to not get on the rig, to stay back so I can organize whatever, you know what I mean? Um, you know, the organization I'm at now is a smaller organization and, um, there's opportunity for me to, to even drive the rig, you know, when there's no drivers and I got to get the rig out the door, you know, there's a time for that but it's kind of like last case scenario to, so to speak. So, so I guess you could find an organization um, where you can get a little bit of both like brush did or myself, but 
if you're going to climb your organization and, and it's not the room, that's a headspace that, that you have to have peace with. So we're going to kind of wrap things up. You were on the circuit teaching a ton for a long time, took a step back. What advice do you have to the young guys that are on Facebook now to see a conference every weekend and want to be out teaching everywhere and be that guy online, having a family at home? Do you want to talk about that? Is that something you want to? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's, that's extremely, extremely important. Um, one thing I want to ask you, if, if you're one of those training companies that I see online or Facebook that come up a lot, a lot, a lot, um, you know, I ask your motive, you know, like, what's your reasoning? What's your reasoning to do it? Um, and, and that's not an answer I, I can give. It's, it's, are you passionate about the job? You want to not duplicate mistakes in the fire service that has been done before and you feel a, a void or vacancy? Or is it to lift yourself, you know? So you find, you find your, your motivation to do that and have peace with that or else I want to I believe in my experience as well, it, it becomes short-lived. When you take yourself more serious than, than the job, right? Take what you do very serious, don't take yourself serious and, and you'll go way, way far further. Um, I'd even say, I could say this a little personally too, but you know, maybe give credit, credit's due. You know, people innovate things and um, by no means is everything I teach my own innovation. Absolutely not. But if, if you acknowledge somebody or, or do, doing it the right way, people know, people know. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is balance it. And this word gets thrown out a lot, but I don't know if people are obeying it as much as they do. So that's, that's probably one of my biggest, I guess, biggest motivations to not be out like I used to be. You know, as you know, every three weeks I was, we were, um, our cadre was somewhere else in the country. And whether it be a conference or an individual fire department, we were teaching, we, were th we think we were doing the greater good. And what, home, what was happening at home was our first ministry, which is our family, was suffering, mine. And um, so I, pride started setting in that, you know, I got to teach this stuff. These people are eating it up and I'm saving firefighters' lives, but I was ruining my own. So um, I don't know if that would have... If, no, I don't believe that was said to me when, I, when we were going, going crazy out there, but I don't know if I would listen to it either, but I would like someone to drill it into me. I looked up to mentors with, with what kind of shoes I bought to carabiners that I had. So I think I would have listened to them about some life lessons to, as well. So what, what I tell all these, all of you that are coming out passionate about the job is that your first ministry has to be at home. Um, you take care of the firemen better than you take care of your wife or your husband or your children, or, you know, you're out training more times than you're at the ball games. Um, your spiritual life is failing. You're getting caught up in all this just unhealthy behavior or thoughts or whatever the scenario is. Um, I encourage you big time is that you'll still be around if you're doing it for the right reasons. And you're not going to do no good unless your home life, your home life and yourself, um, is taken care of. So when I moved out here, I know I was going to a 40 hour job as opposed to the shift work. I knew I didn't have my four days off. I didn't know I had a Kelly day. I didn't know I, I knew I wasn't going to have that vacation day that would give me six days off or whatever. So, so I knew that. So I, I set my mind around that, that it was going to be different, but I knew it was going to be a new season of my life that was going to, um, be able to influence a different state, a different fire department, who, who whatever. I had no, no agenda. Um, so th I, I stepped back and I, I hear about it a bunch and I decline more, more classes than I take on nowadays, but I, I still do some, you know, I still do some, so still reach out and I'll, I'll give you as much as I, I can when I can. But that balance was definitely not appropriate for me. I'm glad I, I'm glad I'm wise enough now to uh to know the difference and a much more much more balanced than that piece well paul it's a pleasure to see uh your transformation and i appreciate you as a as a brother as a friend uh you led me back to god uh love seeing what you're doing with your kids and with your wife and, and with your department it's just awesome and uh i can't say enough about our friendship 
if guys want to get a hold of you to find out information about anything, what's the best way they can do that? Um, I would, I'd probably say uh, when things go bad at hotmail.com. And, and that's my email. Um, you can go on uh, when things go bad, inc.com, which is the website, and find that email as well. So just the basic Google when things go bad. Um, and they email me, and then what that's going to lead is a phone call. So um, I'm much, I, I like talking um, in person more than even the email stuff, but that's the best way and reach out. And then uh, actually my cell phone number is even on, on the website. So yeah, the, you don't have to look too, too hard to find me anymore. Thanks to you, Grant. All right. Uh, you got anything else you want to share or? No, I don't. Um, yeah, I, I, I felt like I talked too much, but, um, just that I always, uh, always love meeting, New brother and sister firefighters, no matter where you go, you see Maltese cross on someone's shirt. You know, you have a friend in the room. So anytime you guys come to Estes Park, Colorado, um, I'm at our main firehouse. So please come in, say hello. And then in travels as well, if uh, you run, run into me, I'd, I'd love, to, love to meet other firemen. So uh, that's all I got, Grant. Thank you for having me on. And I appreciate our friendship as well. All right. And that does it for this episode of The Journeyman. Until next time.